back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movie by Minute hosts examine the 1946 classic, The Best Years of Our Lives. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm this week's host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm the creator of several podcasts, including Bull Durham Minute, a Movie by Minute podcast about Bull Durham. Also, I'm the host of Locked On MLB, which is a five-day-a-week baseball podcast and part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. I was the creator of the Sully Baseball Podcast, which did over 1,600 consecutive days with a new show every single day talking about baseball. And I've also been a television producer and the director of the independent film I'll Believe You and a bunch of other stuff. I've done a lot of things sampling from the Creative Buffet and I want to thank Jim O'Kane for having me be part of this wonderful experience to do episodes on the fabulous best years of our lives. This week, I'm going to be starting with minute 121, which opens with Peggy telling Marie that Fred will get a better job and ends with Marie gritting her teeth, telling the photographer to take a picture. So I'm going to be doing this episode solo because I want to talk a little bit about my own relationship with this movie and some of my thoughts about being in the powder room. But I also wanted to do that because I want to get my thoughts out of the way early because I'm going to be bringing in some various guests with interesting points of view of the film and I want to pick their brain. I'm just going to give you a little bit of my own background with the film. In the early 1990s, when I was attending film school at New York University, I decided to do kind of a movie-watching scavenger hunt. And I have to be honest with you, I really kind of miss that element of finding movies, that if there's a film you really wanted to see, you had to look for it. You had to find the video stores that had a wider library and sometimes more obscure selections. And I had a book called Inside Oscar that listed, that basically went through every single year of the Academy Awards and wrote funny things about all the ceremonies. But at the end, they had this big sort of, uh, I guess, reference of every film that had ever been nominated and all the winners. Now, of course, now we would just click on IMDb, but then I had to have this book to look things up. And because I'm a completionist and also a a compulsive list writer, I wrote a list of all the films that ever won Best Picture. And I said, I'm going to watch all of them. I want to be able to say I've seen every film that's ever won Best Picture, knowing that sometimes a unworthy film won, and knowing sometimes that truly classic films failed to even receive an Academy Award nomination. I understood that. I just became a bit of an Oscar junkie. This was roughly 1990, 1991, when I was about 18, 19 years old at New York University. And I would go to places like Kim's Video, which was a group of video stores that always seemed to be a little bit dirty. I mean, by that I mean not well cleaned, but also had the most amazing selections of videotapes. And of course, then everything was VHS. And I was able to check a lot of things off there and at the NYU Film Library. 
And I saw Best Years of Our Lives as part of my scavenger hunt. And when you know nothing about the film, and I didn't back in 1990-91, and you see that it's a two-cassette film, when you see that it's at the thicker box, the wider box, and you know that some films are two film or two cassette films, like you know, The Godfather certainly would be. And sometimes it's thrilling when you see a two cassette film. And sometimes it's a slog. The greatest story ever told, the George Stevens story about Jesus, which did not win Best Picture, but I went on a little bit of a Bible film kick at one point. And man, that's tough to get through especially when you're thinking, I got a whole other tape to get through. Seeing the two tapes can sometimes be intimidating, but eventually I rented it and I watched it. And it is the ideal situation to watch this film is the way I saw it. Now, granted, probably the ideal situation would have been for me to see it in a revival house or see it on the big screen in one sitting. It took me about two days. I watched one tape one day, another tape the other day. So I binge-watched, essentially, the best years of our lives. Why I say I saw it in the best way you could, you know, on my tiny television in my dorm room, is that I knew nothing about it. I didn't know what it was about. I never saw a preview of it. And remember, this is a pre-YouTube time. This is a pre-Google time. So to me, it was just a black and white videotape box at Kim's Video. And the picture they had on it was a really uninspiring shot of the main characters just kind of standing there. It wasn't like a big action shot or something like that. Not that there's any action scenes in this film. So I went into this film raw. I went into this film dumb. I went into this film completely blind to what it was. And it really startled me. It was really an experience. And I will say that I watched it with a little bit of skepticism starting because this film won the Best Picture the same year that It's a Wonderful Life won Best Picture, which that's one of my favorite movies. And so there was a little bit of kind of swagger tough guy from your pal Sully basically thinking okay you think you're better than it's a wonderful life Mr. Best Years of Our Lives bring it on I was taken by the fact that the film took its time a lot of times when you saw one of those two cassette movies it's because it was a sweeping epic that covered many years, covered many locations. It was too big for one VHS tape. A film like Gandhi was like that, that it took place over several decades, and there was the big, wide, huge set pieces in the film. And there's none of that in this. There are startling visuals. There's amazing cinematography, and in the clip that we're going through on today's episode, it's some of the best cinematography in the entire movie. Greg Toland was a cinematographer who had famously done both The Grapes of Wrath and famously had done Citizen Kane. 
and a lot of the camera tricks and innovations that he created along with Orson Welles in Citizen Kane are used in this film, albeit a little more subtly. The reason this is a two-cassette movie is that it took its sweet time. It was in no rush to tell the story. And because of that, the film was better. If this film was shorter, if this film was more compact, if this film was more plot-driven than character-driven, I think it would have been a much worse movie. The details in this film are what make it. When Frederick March is in the bank talking with a soldier who doesn't have enough equity and then is basically reprimanded for doing that, neither one of those scenes are quick. But they needed to be drawn out in order to show the emotion in it. The scenes where the three soldiers are going off on their bar hopping drunken rampage on their first night back needed to be that long. The scenes involving Harold Russell and the agony of him knocking on the door to get help from his dad. Yeah, that scene plays out, but that's because it has to. It's the definition of a character first plot second film. And personally, I prefer those movies. I am not the biggest proponent of the three-act structure or if a scene or line of dialogue doesn't propel the plot forward, you got to cut that out, just keep it moving, moving, moving. No. Sometimes I see movies to spend time with those characters. And if you wrote out the plot points of this film, it probably wouldn't be that eventful. But I don't know what scene I would cut from this film because you need all that to have the film flow over you as a story of three people adjusting to their lives and adjusting in a way that you don't normally think of or normally see in a Hollywood movie. The scene that that was covered, I don't know who covered it, it was way, way, way before these minutes when Frederick March comes home and he stands in the hallway and he looks down and he sees Myrna Loy and it's the first time that they've seen each other since the war. And that moment of that pause, that beautiful pause before they embrace, that moment of, is this really happening? Because I've been imagining this for years. God, if that doesn't break your heart, then it's because you're a horrible human being. The thing that startled me when I saw the film, and also keep in mind that uh, my mother at the time was doing study work of shell shock veterans, post-traumatic stress disorder at the VA in Palo Alto, California. She's a professor at Stanford of neuropsychology. So we had heard about PTSD. We had heard about the effects of war on people, the negative effects, and to see it being portrayed in a film from the 40s, because this seemed like a relatively new thing, was quite brave, and also quite brave that 
this film starts where most films end. That the brave men came back from battle and they're reunited with their loved ones. Fade out the end. And this was the film that was made to say, maybe don't say fade out the end. What happened? What happened? And to be a mainstream Hollywood film in the 40s, to have the guts to say, maybe they didn't live happily ever after. Maybe coming home wasn't a triumphant return. And also, maybe it was hard on the people when they came back. The people who were reunited. Because they lived their own lives as well. And several of the women found a level of independence that they may not have been able to relinquish right away. Which brings us to this minute here. Now, in this minute, we see um, we see the Teresa Wright character, Peggy, and we see the Virginia Mayo character, Marie, in the powder room. Now, of course, Peggy, Teresa Wright, who was a, a William Wyler veteran, she was in the Academy Award-winning Mrs. Miniver, which was the previous film that Weiler made, which is four years before this. Uh, so Weiler had a lot of experience with Teresa Wright. He had not worked with Virginia Mayo before. Uh, I think they're both wonderful in this scene. And of course, in this scene, Peggy wants to see how miserable Fred is in his marriage with Marie. And of course, she hates Marie. She sees Marie as not appreciating Fred. He's dismissive when when Peggy is trying to act uh, supportive of him. So he'll find a better job. She completely dismisses it and points out that in order to live the affluent life that she wants to live, it's probably going to be impossible with Fred. And you see that realization of how awful she feels that, that how awful Peggy thinks of Marie when the camera moves from a shot where we're looking into the mirror of the two of them talking. And then we move Marie out of the shot. So we now see it's Peggy and her own reflection. Anytime you see someone talking to a mirror, there's a subtext going on of people looking into themselves and forcing themselves to reflect on who they are. And this scene is almost dizzying because it's, it's really hard to determine at any one point, at what point are you looking at a mirror and are you looking at the real thing? At what point are you looking at someone's reflection or you're looking at who they really are? And this whole scene is about Peggy seeing what the marriage really is in a moment of privacy between two women and her putting on a face. Marie, Virginia Mayo's character, is putting on a face of makeup and to make herself look more glamorous. And you get the sense she's doing it more for the character of of peggy's date who is uh woody 
than it is for her own husband. She wants to impress the good-looking guy more than anything, and she wants to look. This is who she wants to be. She wants to be glamorous. She wants to be living a great life in a nightclub and encourages Peggy to be like her, to say, you need more makeup, you need your hair. But as she said, oh, it doesn't matter. You'll get Woody, and it's in the bag. And of course, this whole scene is just disgusting, Peggy, because she, in Peggy's mind, she's awful. She doesn't appreciate it and everything. Um, I, I will talk about this uh, probably a little bit in one of the other minutes I'm going to go over. But it's funny that she is, Marie is portrayed as kind of a uh, an ungrateful gold digger that she wants to live a shallow life. She doesn't appreciate Fred. We like Fred, all this other stuff. And I probably thought those same things about her the first time I saw the film. But the fact of the matter is I've grown to really like Marie. I found her to be more, much more of a sympathetic character the more that I see the film. Because she was someone who found her independence when she was living alone and Fred wasn't there. And that Fred has come back and is basically putting a crimp in her life. And she points out in in another scene that she gave up her own job. She had an identity. She had her own money and probably would have done a lot better than than Fred would. So I don't see her as being the villainous. I see everyone as having to adapt to everyone coming back from the war and the war ending and people grow and people change. And Fred and Marie's marriage was an act of spontaneity, probably romance before the war began. And the reality of moments of spontaneity like that are they probably don't always work out because the person you are one year is not going to be the person you are in four years. And she is someone, she's, she's supremely confident. She knows who she is and she knows what she wants. And while we're seeing this from Peggy's perspective and a perspective that keeps changing from the mirror reflections. Uh, I don't see her as a bad guy. I really don't. Of course, when they get up from the uh, the beautiful piece of Greg Tolan cinematography, when they get up from the chairs and walk out, the camera moves to yet another series of mirrors and another series of perspective. And the maid is there, one of the few African-American characters in the film. And then we move out to the club for what I'm going to declare the most awkward photograph at a dinner I've ever seen. Now, again, I kind of like that Marie is making the best of this. She's having fun. Now, part of it is that it looks like Woody is more interested in Marie than Peggy. It's not going to work with Woody and Peggy. Uh, note about Woody, he's played by the actor uh, Victor Cutler. Uh, 
had a bunch of smaller parts in films, apparently wrote a bunch of screenplays that didn't get produced. He was also a male model from magazine. So, you know, he's a good looking dude. You could definitely see that at second 56, a nice smile. And she has uh, Fred put his arm around Peggy. And you get the sense because Marie is, uh, she's no dummy. She kind of knows the score and, and as if to say, go put your arm around her. Because what do you want to do? And she looks lovingly at uh, Woody and basically grinds her teeth as they take the picture as if to say, capture this moment. This moment where I'm looking at the good looking dude and you two are sitting over there. Your arm's around, uh, you know, Fred's arm is around Peggy. The two of you look miserable and we look happy and great. So there's a very, you know, she gets what's happening there. And this is a very kind of subtle middle finger that she's giving to the two of them. It's like, oh, you think you're going to be so happy? Here you go. You go ahead and look miserable while I have the time of my life looking at the good looking dude. So that's a, uh, oh, let's hear it for Marie. She's probably going to get a lot of, I, I mean, I'm not listening to the other minutes. I don't know how much guff she's getting. But uh, uh, there's something to her that I, I'm kind of, she kind of is growing on me. Uh, Virginia Mayo, by the way, for those of you who don't know, was a very successful actress who was in you know, some, some very big films. Later, she was in White Heat, which was a Jimmy Cagney classic film. But around the time of Best Years of Our Lives, she was the leading lady opposite of Bob Hope in the princess and the pirate, which was a big hit movie. She was in the secret life of Walter Mitty, which was a, a, a big blockbuster and uh, also was in the wonder man and the kid from Brooklyn, which were also Danny. She was basically paired with Danny Kay a lot. And those are three huge Danny Kay films, wonder man, kid from Brooklyn and the secret life of Walter Mitty. And, and so she was a box office draw as kind of a, you know, a booksom blonde who plays well off of stars and plays well off of comedic stars. But she really wanted to be in this picture. She really wanted to be in Best Years of Our Lives, which had people knew this was going to be a big movie. This is William Wyler's first movie after coming back from World War II. The previous film he had done was Mrs. Miniver, which was a huge success at the box office and also won the Academy Award for Picture and Director. And this is his first movie back, uh, a, a big budget Samuel Goldwyn production. So it was one of those that even though she wasn't going to be second build like she would be in a Danny Kaye vehicle, it's the, the classic, it never hurts your career to be in a big successful film and she got to have her name you know very prominently she's on the she's on the one sheet you know, the one sheet is a picture of Myrna Loy, Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright and Virginia Mayo and so you know she gets to be alongside those big names and in a uh, a gigantic Hollywood film now evidently Virginia Mayo was nervous about working with William Wyler, who had the reputation of 
kind of the Kubrick before Kubrick, you know, maybe not as extreme as what Kubrick became, but as someone who did take after take after take after take and was quite nervous about working with someone like that because that apparently was not how they did Danny Kaye films or Bob Hope films. But evidently they got along fine and didn't have to do take after take. So maybe she knew exactly what William Wyler wanted. And either way, what she did certainly worked and certainly made the film a terrific tapestry, a t- terrific, excellent movie of which, you know what? Uh, she's always been described, even in when I was doing my homework for this, she's always described as such a negative character. And you know what? I'll be honest. Um, I think she's a product of her environment rather than a villain. So if anyone wins this minute as the MVP, uh, it would be either Virginia Mayo or the extraordinary photography by Greg Tolan, but also Weiler for choreographing it and knowing where to put it. And that sort of dizzying, where am I looking at? What reflection am I looking at? What part is real? What part is not? Which, of course, perfectly mirrors the emotion behind this scene as Peggy is trying to figure out where she fits in in this puzzle. And that's what's great about a film in many ways that it doesn't just do the cinematic gymnastics to show off, but uses these techniques in a way to further the story visually and in ways that get through your subconscious. So that's all I got on minute 121. I'm not going to be flying solo for the rest of the minutes I'm doing. Uh, my dear friend, uh, brother Scott Michael Pomerank is coming in for the next minute. We're going to be talking for a couple of minutes about this and the upcoming scenes. And so I'm really looking forward to that. He is a great movie mind. And we've known each other for a long time. I'm eager to get his thoughts on this classic movie. And you can find the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or on the the main site, thebestminutes.com. If you want to follow us on social media, the best place to go is Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listener Cafe on Facebook. Also follow us on The Best Minutes on Twitter. So come back for the next minute where Brother Scott Pomerank will be here and we'll be breaking down minute 122 of the best years of our lives here on the best minutes podcast hey joe you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.